So the first day of the retreat is coming to an end, and it's nice to know that most of you, of course I wouldn't know, but most of you look like you're still sitting here and prepared for tomorrow. Uh, Although I'm sure your minds have weighed in with other alternatives. (laughs) How many of you have packed your bags uh, mentally and thought, this uh, practice is not for me, I want to get out of here, and only to find the next sitting that vanishing and something else arising. Uh, perhaps a, a touch of the motivation for why you came has reached you today. If not, it quite likely will at some point during the retreat. But it doesn't keep the mind from trying, from squirming, does it? it squirms, it squirms. It's... In fact, it's being threatened. Now, what I'm... I'm not saying that the organism is being threatened. It's obviously a safe environment, a healthy one. And if we had a little more exercise, it would be a, a full life. Uh, but it, you're not, you're, there's nothing, the organism isn't uh, under attack. It's in a safe environment. And uh, the food is good. But the, um, the mind is being attacked. And may I define that as the, the sense of me, the sense of the sense of who we are, uh, because we have built ourselves up from um, from a network of activity and images and ideas, uh, none of which can be validated in a quiet environment. And so, uh, when we try to, much of our life is about the continuation of our validation. We look into each other's eyes, hoping that that person is in some ways rewarding me for being who I am. And we don't even look into each other's eyes here, let alone speak. Uh, and there's not a lot of interaction, and, uh, and there's not a lot of activity. So therefore, there's not a lot of validation. Well, that's why the mind squirms, is it tries to bring up the reasons why it should be validated in terms of its memory, in terms of its, its planning. If I can't find validation now, I'll look into the future and find why I should exist from things I need to do when I get out of here. Or why I should be so miserable because of all the things I've done in the past and feel so shameful and guilty about. That's reason enough to continue living to find my way out of that misery. And so we, we look, we we get very panicky. Uh, again, all of us go through that period of squirming, trying to figure out uh, what is the meaning of who we are and the world, given that I'm doing nothing about anything. <laughs> In fact, the intonation of what our parents might have said is that you'll never be anything it seems to be the only thing that is being validated here. <laughs> so it's not an easy day. It's not an easy day. Uh, and uh, we should just, uh, f- for a moment, um, give ourselves some credit for the fact that we stayed in place. Especially those who are new and didn't know what they were getting into. And you did. 
Someone once said that a successful retreat isn't what happens during it, it's that the person remained. <laughs> so for, for day one, you've all <laughs> succeeded. <laughs> and you know, um, especially when you're new, but relatively new, actually, this goes right on through. But one of the hardest things about the retreat is getting understanding the difference between thinking about something and actually making contact with it. It's one, um, for those of us who have been doing it some years, seems so obvious that we don't give enough explanation and instructions of how difficult that really is to know the difference between those two. Most of our life, there has been very few touch points. We're like a, a, a wells, a, a flattened, shiny rock that has been flown, of, thrown uh, across a lake with some great momentum. And we just touch, and then, we're skip, and then we skip, and then we come back down and touch, and we skip again. And our, our touch points of life are um, few and far between before we generate the thoughts in the context of what that touch means to my, the rest of my life and what it means to, the, to who I am and what it means and to where, I'm, where am I going to land again and all of that. Uh, and so most of our life has been lived um, in the air, in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the thinking about, the reflection of, and so when we talk about connecting with the breath, it's like, what do you mean? Do you mean think about it or like have an image about it? Or uh, how do I know what the breath is? I only have thought about life. And that's the first existential crisis that we face very early on in this tradition is what is the, what does it mean to make contact? What does it mean to actually touch existence. And that continues in more and more subtle ways right on through. Right on through. It's so hard. You see, the, the landscape of, the, of any spiritual training is to know the qualitative difference between those two dimensions the dimension of thought, the trance of thought, and the dimension of reality or, phrased another way, awareness. Those are, and, and, and we touch one a little bit, but we don't touch it sufficiently. And when we touch it, we see all the reasons why we have gone off into thinking to begin with. Because when we touch it, there seems pretty dry, pretty lifeless down here, foggy, doesn't seem to be much there worth validating or, or even acknowledging. So why not? Thinking is much... I can go anywhere in my thought. I can, I can create my own context. I can, go in, I can go to last year's vacation if I wish. And uh, reality doesn't seem to hold that same excitement. And so slowly over time, as the rock touches again and again and again, and as we're willing to face 
the inevitable conflict when the rock does touch, because when the rock does touch, we face ourselves. We face what we have, the backlog of our own lives. That's what we face. The screams that we have been running from our whole life. And so we're often skipping again. I'm not going there. Why would I go there? That's point miserable. And then after a while, as we learn the orientation to that touch so that we um, have a different way of holding it, a different context, a different way of understanding it, then the touch far, um, far exceeds the pleasure of thought. It's not even in the same ball field. Far exceeds. In fact, Even to talk about those in any kind of equivalent way is nonsensical. So I want to talk about just, tonight I want to talk about three words that I believe hold the essence of the practice. And if you learn these three words, you can apply them throughout this retreat, but also throughout your life as the orientation for any experience that might arise, which will assure you, not of having a pleasant experience, but being oriented so that there is the most, uh, the optimum strategy for growth to occur. And what more can we ask from life than that? And those three words are relax, observe, and allow. And I want to talk about each of those words separately. But I want you to um, get a feeling for those words because they they don't hold struggle. None of those words. Relax. Just feel your way into each one. Observe and allow. There's no uh, struggle in any of those words. There's uh, no sense of control. In fact, they're the essence of simplicity because we are doing nothing. We are doing nothing. And as we begin to practice, we begin to understand the less we do in our practice, the more it works towards our growth. And that we work actively, engaging and doing a lot of activities in our practice, often because we, um, we intrude on our practice because we're afraid, we're scared. We're frightened by what the implications of not doing means when you face a state of mind like anger and you do nothing about it. The implication is, one, that I'm an angry person. That we get, we receive our validation from the state of mind itself. And I'm not going to let that happen because my whole life I've tried to be kind and I'm not going to allow nothing to happen in the state of anger. Why would I do that? I'm going to take arms against. But these words, relax, observe and allow, hold none of that struggle. 
Well, none of that struggle. And we begin slowly through the use of those words to realize that less is more. The less we do, the deeper we see. I had an interesting, when I was a monk in Asia, I was at uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's monastery, and his monastery was well-known throughout Asia, and so a lot of traveling um, <coughs> monks would stop there on their way from A to B. And there was once a Tibetan monk that stopped, and uh, he could speak English, so we got together and uh, spent a very nice afternoon. And he, um, he s- told me, I asked him what practices he does, and he started telling me about his practices. And uh, it took him probably, he probably talked an hour nonstop. And I was just amazed. I mean, it was a devotional practice with um, a different, um, a, a, a whole pantheon of different uh, gods. And uh, tremendous devotion uh, to these forms and expressions and to his guru and to all the mantras he was doing and all the forms of meditation and imagery, imaging and uh, the tankas. And the, I mean, it was just, uh, I was really, um, I have to say, envious of him, of all the things he could do. And and then he asked me what my practice was. <laughs> and I said, because um, I couldn't think fast enough <laughs> to make it any more exciting, I said, well, I try to see things as they are. He was not impressed. <laughs> and uh, it, this in, in no way is a disparaging comment because to him, the, the whole array of activity was directed and meaningful, in a meaningful pursuit, which I have no understanding of whatsoever, so cannot comment upon. But for me, as I have matured in this lineage, I'm very proud of that one phrase and one phrase only. There's not a lot of trappings here. There's not a lot of induced excitement or stimulation or activity. Uh, And as I begin to understand the mind more thoroughly, I understand that it is that very need for activity, and again, this is not in any way a reference to Tibetan practice, but the need for activity in general is a really a need for self-perpetuation. And this practice doesn't hold a lot of that. And so these words, relax, observe, and allow, are a direction, a calling, towards that simplicity of being. The real midlife crisis is that we have spent the first half of our life, most of us, 
working diligently to do just the opposite of relax, observe, and allow. And we have created a life, a vocation, a family, and perhaps sufficient finances based upon that endeavor, those strategies. And then all of a sudden, we're faced with the limitation of what those can do to us and for us in our life. The end point, where you realize that it's too uh, simplistic to say that it's been a waste of time because they've done a lot of very remarkable things for us, providing livelihood, etc. But spiritually, spiritually, they do very little. The ambition, the striving, the worrying, the planning, the remorse. And that this is about something, this is the real crisis of our life when we realize that we can't employ those same strategies into our spiritual endeavors. And we have nothing else in our bag to grab. We have no other resources. We have no other skills. And we hear, follow the breath, and we have no idea what that even means. Because we can't find our breath through our thought. And it seems hopeless to many of us early on, and to all of us at some points, that I've been doing this for such a long time, and still, and still. Relax, observe, and allow. How do we ingest those words? How do we make them what they are? Let's just take each in turn. Relax, relax. Now, that's something we've heard a lot about it, usually um, from our doctors, uh, because we aren't taught to relax in the marketplace. And in fact, holding stress has a certain, um, that tension that we hold, that worry that we maintain, has a certain um, credibility factor to us. It means that we're engaged in something if we worry about it. In fact, we think that unless we really worry about somebody, we don't really care about them, do we? So unless there's some kind of engaged worry, we think we're not caring sufficiently. And it can go so far as to think unless you worry about the future activity, that the future activity won't turn out all right without that worry. And so we're not given to understand relaxation in the way that it's meant here. And the way that it's meant here is, is not what you do before you go to sleep. It's not losing consciousness. It's alert relaxation. The ease of well-being. And the near enemy of relaxation is indulgence. Now that one we understand. 
And what we often seek in relaxation is self-indulgence. We, we seek a way to comfort ourselves, to soothe ourselves. And so what we are longing for mostly is a way out of the fires of our conflict, of our struggles. And indulgence seems to be the only way that we can perceive that exit. And so we equate relaxation as a kind of indulgence, which means, for many of us, that when the bell goes off at 5.15 in the morning, rolling over, I'm going to follow that guy's suggestion and relax, meaning not get out of bed. (laughs) So none of that is the right orientation to the relaxation. Relaxation simply means non-resistance. Now, the reason that's so beautifully needed in meditation is that it is the resistance factor. It is the where we are resisting that is the problem, the contextual problem of our spiritual challenge. It's the spiritual challenge we have is where we are unable to relax, you might say. Where we are resisting life in whatever way it's manifesting. And how do we resist life? We create thoughts counter to the reality. So we create a reality that's superimposed upon this one through our thinking. And we like the one of our images much far better than we like the one that's actually occurring. So we choose to move our habitat into the mind. That is ultimately... a creates an angst and a tightness of body and mind. So when we're asked to relax, we're asked to simply release ourselves from the tension of our minds, of our thinking, which means all the programmed worry we've gone through, all the backlog of regret, all of the ways that we are disgruntled and in conflict with the moment. And so the simple form of relaxation itself will take you through layer upon layer upon layer of where we resist. And so it's a complete practice in and of itself if you know what the word means and where its intentions are spiritually. Just to ask yourself from time to time, where is the relaxation in this moment? And immediately you find the mind having confiscated any sense of relaxation or ease with a kind of worry. Okay, let me see that now. What do we meet the worry with? We don't meet the worry with anything other than these three words. You see, the means, we always have to employ the right means here. So even if it's the worst possible hardness of in conflict, in struggle we're in, we employ those three words. Okay, let me relax with this. Let me observe this. Let me allow this to be. Which doesn't allow us to do anything about it, which is the last thing we believe has any credibility to do no- I've been doing nothing about myself the whole life. And this guy is saying, do nothing, 
And that's the spiritual answer. That's absurd. I've got, I've got to have more things to do. I've got to have tasks. I've got to have... Relax with it. Because these three words are the activity of faith. Not faith in you. Because the only thing you know to put faith in is your action, is your muscle tone. And when you release yourself from the need of your own action, what catches you? Where do you fall? Who picks up the pieces? It's faith and the fact that you can't do it and that you're tired of trying. And let's see where relaxation will take me because I'm tired of creating false bottoms so that I can land, which is another form of tension. What if I just... Really relaxed. And we can't lean into a problem and relax at the same time. So you catch, you catch through your willingness to pursue that word in its subtle, in subtle forms of meaning and expression, we see where it is that we are unwilling to relax with a particular object or experience. I'm not willing to put this down. I'm I'm not willing to surrender myself to this. I'm not willing to relax with this. Why? Because we're worried and frightened that this thing that we need or feel we need self-protection from, if we release our guard, our defense, will overwhelm us. And so we have to test the waters of that theory. We have to see whether our mind will ever overwhelm us or not. Whether that's even a possibility What can overwhelm? An emotion is a makes you feel something. If you're willing to feel it, that's all it's got. It doesn't have any more ammunition than its ability to emote. And so there's this Confidence that begins to come through relaxation. Because the orientation to life now is no longer ambivalent. There rises a kind of certainty and confidence that each experience is in essence harmless. And that no defense is needed. That if I'm willing to feel, to experience what life has to offer, that's all it has to offer. And in the course of this 10 days, you will see a great deal of what the mind has to offer. And many of you have experienced several retreats and you've seen the whole thing. It has nothing else. More of the same. I was, um, I was teaching a teen class uh, in Seattle 
uh, teenagers, um, 14 to 19. And so there was a 15-year-old girl, and she um, was listening to uh, relaxation and my encouraging that as a response to some of the challenges that her family uh, offered. And she went home, and uh, she told the following story the next week when she came back. She said that she was on the sofa with her mother, her father, and her brother, and the whole uh, dynamic and energy level started to ratchet up. And she saw that normally she would have her uh, own role in that uh, increased response. And she caught herself, and she said, you know what, I'm just going to relax with this. I'm not going to get. I'm not going to fulfill my role. And she saw everybody rise up, the energy go like that, until she settled down, and everybody goes shoom like that, right, right back with her. And she she came back, and she was just absolutely amazed that there could be that choice for her family. Fifteen, age fifteen. You see, I think relaxation uh, is such an important word that uh, when Heather was giving the instructions last night, she mentioned that when you find yourself having been lost, the task at hand having been severed, and you're no longer on the breath, meaning experiencing the physicality of the body, uh, and you're lost in thought. Uh, the uh, temptation is, when we wake up, uh, to uh, sort of do our usual self-abuse, uh, our sense of feeling that we're not up to the task, that we're um, failures, uh, or that we're self-critical in some way, a heavy sense of judgment, and then go back to the task laden with additional burden of our self-judgment. Rather than do that, we offered, or she offered, um, another response, which was uh, to just relax. See where you are. You don't have to go anywhere. Just relax and see where it is. Now that you have awakened, what's there with you? And sure enough, if you're quiet, the breath will come right back because that's part of what's with you. And you'll reconnect through relaxation, not through a stress, not through self-condemning, not through um, an ambition or a striving, but through relaxation. Furthermore, it will dissipate any accompanying judgment that you would have carried back to the breath. Because that will be relaxed out. That tension that carries that judgment will be relaxed right through. Just try it. See if you can't carve your whole meditation out of relaxation and ease. So then let us go move now to the second of those three words, and that is observe. The near enemy of observation is opinionation. Now, I was telling you from the beginning 
that when we are living in a world of thought, really the subtlety of living and seeing through thought becomes the whole of the meditation practice, seeing where it is that thought is confiscating the reality and creating its own, its own perception of things. And this will follow us right on through, no matter how many years we are there, is the picking up that subtle quality of coloration, of perceptual distortion that thought will bring to observation. What, we, what our observation needs to look like is what the light does to you. Just for a moment, feel the light in the room on your skin. Just feel it. Can you feel it? No. Does it weigh in with any kind of weight at all so that you're being pushed even ever so slightly or subtly? No. Not at all. Does it have any comment about what it sees at all? None. What is its only quality? Its only quality is to highlight, is to reveal. That's all. That's the bare attention that we're trying to employ. That's the cleaning the mirror, cleaning that observation so that it shines so brightly that it does exactly what light is doing. So from time to time in your practice, ask yourself whether your observation is as benign and as luminous as light. And then seek to refine your differentiation between observation and opinionation. Because that's what's obscuring the light. And you want to be quieter and quieter in yourself. Putting more and more emphasis on the observation, less and less emphasis on the opinionation. You can't ever see something undistorted if you have an idea about what it is that you're seeing as you're seeing it. You can only see something in its raw, natural form, new, fresh, without any ideas. That is the quality of bare attention that we are trying to nurture through the practice of just sustaining our attention upon the breath. Sustaining our attention upon the breath requires that kind of observation, and it requires a sustaining power to observe. That sustaining power for most of us, both of them are difficult. Mostly we don't are able to sustain our attention upon much of anything because we're so used to thinking about something that we give over the observation to the thought and follow the ramblings of the thought rather than what we're being actually observing. So just begin to see the dynamic of those two playing for, the opinionation, the ideas, and the observation. And get clearer and clearer on the differentiation of what those two things are, which thing is happening, and how it's obscuring so that you're not really seeing as clearly as you might if you allowed yourself to be a little quieter. We're not interested in changing anything because the moment you get upset with yourself about how much opinions or how many opinions you hold, 
you're increasing the level of noise in your mind. And so there's going to be more opinions through your being upset. So you learn that you can't be upset with yourself and make this thing work. You have to be quiet with yourself. And so the, uh, the, uh, the only thing that you meet your objections with is silence, is relaxation. Observation does something else that we often don't acknowledge thoroughly. As we observe more detail, which means that the observation gets wetter as we get quieter, which means it starts filling in the nooks and crannies of where our observation hasn't been able to go because we've been too noisy to allow it to go there. But as we get quieter, the observation becomes wetter. As it becomes wetter, we hear, see, smell, taste with more refinement. We sense with more sensitivity. As the observation gets quieter so that we're observing more, our heart comes in because it is the willingness to see with more sensitivity that is the heart. What does sensitivity mean? That you're being sensitive to, that the heart is involved with. And so as we quiet, we notice that we have more caring available. We care about things. We care about what we're seeing. We care about what we're doing to ourselves and how we have mistreated ourselves. We begin to care about the pain of the world merely because we're refining our observation and our observation is the heart. So as we get quieter in ourselves and observe more, the heart comes out. And that's why this practice is really a practice of the heart. So what's the third Relax, observe, and allow. Now, I like to talk about the near enemies, and the near enemy of allowance is losing our boundaries. And you might say, well, I thought we were supposed to lose our boundaries. I thought we were supposed to see ourselves as being egoless and all of that. You don't give away yourself before you understand what you're giving away. So we have to see what, you can't just, uh, I hear this sometimes. Uh, there, there's an obvious um, uh, relationship problem or situational problem with a boss or with an abusing spouse, for instance, or some, some way that isn't really healthy for either partner. And one other partner, being a meditator, will say, well, this is my practice. It's my practice to stay in this. It's good practice for me. Well, that's nonsense. It's nonsense to stay in an abusive relationship and call that good practice. See, that's giving away yourself. That's, that's not understanding um, the importance of what it is that you're giving away, and giving over your boundaries and permitting uh, any form of deceit 
any form of manipulation, any form of hurt like that willfully, and to call that practice is, um, is not true. It's not practice. Allowance means something different. Allowance is the permission to love. When the light shines on you, the fact that it only highlights and doesn't distort anything, the fact that it's always with you no matter what your actions might be, no matter how gross your behavior, no matter how awful you project your response, the light still shines upon you. From an inward context, that is love. That is allowance. The willingness just to see without any sense of self-betrayal in that seeing without any sense of shame in what you see. Just seeing is enough. And again, we come back to that question of, what do you you mean just seeing? It seems like, that doesn't seem like it's enough. It doesn't seem like it's enough because we're operating from the wrong perception, from content, from the perception of content. It isn't enough because content is continually dividing the world between This quantity and that quantity. This evaluation and that evaluation. This goodness and that badness. The polarities are involved in content. But when you're quiet and you let your story go, meaning you let your content of your lives recede into more quietude, looking looking from quietude is looking from love. Seeing without distortion where nothing is wrong. Now, how can I say nothing is wrong? Because from content, everything is wrong. Where do we think these statements come from that there is perfection, the perfection of life? When we have multiple wars, when we have hunger and starvation, it's not coming from content. It's coming from the light that just shines. So, so much of life, so much of the practice is the orientation towards that simplicity of relaxation. towards the clarity of observation and towards the love of allowance. Notice that relaxation, observation, and allowance are verbs. They are not nouns. And what a verb does when it touches a noun is that it dissolves the noun into another verb. When we observe ourselves just for what we are. That observation keeps us fluid, keeps us moving, keeps us from fixating, from hardening, from claiming any 
of claiming any characterization as our own. Because through it, we begin to observe the fluidity, the movement, the transition of all things. We begin to see that all of life is a verb. There are no nouns. Wherever we move with our observation, we see transition. We see verb. We see fluidity. Watching is enough. Observation, cleaning the lens, deepening our sense of relaxation, deepening our capacity to hold and to allow. Finding through those three words the harmlessness of all things, the fluidity of all things. We come to rest. But the rest is not a fixed place. It's a deepening contentment. And with that deepening contentment and deepening relaxation comes a deepening observation. And with the deepening observation comes a deepening capacity to care. A deepening love. This is the movement of practice. This is the movement of the rich potential inherent in each of us, not a struggle, not a brutal forcing quality, but a release, a release towards greater intimacy, a release towards a greater and fuller heart. My wish is that we all move in that direction. Thank you. Can we sit for just a minute or two? Now, as you sit, how do you sit? None of those three words deny anything. In fact, they allow all things. So we're not asking or looking to distort or to eliminate, or to encourage. We give everything its rightful life, its rightful time and place, and we don't carry it any further 
than how long it lasts naturally. So none of these words catch us or hold on or maintain. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.